from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking about cyber risk uh, for small business, large business, maybe even uh, some of your consumer cyber risk and how you should think about your behavior online. Uh, I'm joined uh, by Hugh Edwards, who's the uh, CEO of Cyber Fortress. I'll let him tell you a little bit more about that and his background as we uh, kick off the program here. If you're not going to be able to stay with us on the air, uh, CyberTalk Radio is available on every podcasting service out there. If you have a favorite podcasting service where you cannot find our program, reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook. We will get our content added and we will get you a CyberTalk Radio t-shirt. So, Hugh, how did you get interested in cyber risk? And uh, give uh, our listeners a little bit of your background. Pleased to be on the show today. Um, so my background, my background is... Uh, uh, actually in, in finance and investing. I spent my early career uh, structuring uh, uh, derivatives at Goldman Sachs. Uh, I'd like to say I never structured a credit derivative, so uh, the financial crisis was not my uh, my causing. Um, but yeah, I spent my early career um, helping corporate clients in Europe uh, manage their, uh, their equity, foreign exchange, and interest rate risks. Uh, I then spent some time on the investing side, helping uh, growing companies uh, uh, scale their businesses um, and then uh, evolved that actually ended up working in, in at a, a big cloud uh, uh, hosting company Rackspace uh, here in San Antonio, Texas. So this is uh, where you started learning about how things may or may not be safe on the internet. For sure, exactly. And it, in particular there at Rackspace, I had the opportunity there to like really see how small businesses really were sort of, you know, as they're, as they're moving more and more of their business online, starting to see where they're, you know, getting, getting, finding themselves getting compromised. Early on, it was just the, the risk now of their data being lost or destroyed or accidentally, even accidentally deleted. And then more and more seeing how they were then being like, being uh, experiencing ransomware, finding themselves being fished as a cause to them, their presence being more well known online another variety of risks yeah and i i guess as you you look at at most of these businesses out there now we've we've got the the mobile everything and connected everything and Domino's is now taking over pizza because they've got a mobile app you've got starbucks uh doing better than they ever have selling coffee because of their mobile app and and so i think is being online required or can business just decide do you, do you think is it isn't an option just to uh run without an internet presence these days I think these days it's uh, it's table stakes. I think every small business uh, has to have some sort of online presence in some way, shape, or form, even just to get their name out there and to connect with their customers. Uh, beyond obviously the scalability and opportunity from being able to 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 sell and connect more efficiently via the online medium. Yeah. So inside a business, all sorts of risk all the time. So where I mean, we're sitting in a, in a building right now. There's sprinklers above our head for the fire risk in here mm -hmm. um, but this office still has fire insurance uh and it, you go through if someone were to slip on the floor in here i'm certain that the business and the office we're sitting in has insurance for that as well uh what are you seeing uh, in the, the cyber side of things for small businesses? So, I mean, I think we've determined they need to be online under some aspect to help grow their business. Are they doing anything from a, a risk mitigation or um, protection with insurance these days? 
Well, I think first step, I mean, I think most small businesses don't even realize the risks they're facing. They're, they're now finding themselves online in some way, shape or form. And uh, they're finding out, you know, they're, they're becoming aware or cognizant of the risk that's out there on the, net, uh, on the you know, online um, when they get actually suffer an attack or a breach. Um, uh, as opposed to being like most uh, small businesses, you know, carry some sort of insurance to cover, you know, like you said, in the, ca the case there, some fire insurance, um, um, and they don't have to experience a fire in the office before they think about that. Um, yeah, I guess, but I mean, the fire insurance, their landlord makes them have the fire insurance yeah exactly well i think when the online right now it's a bit of the wild west there in terms of there aren't you know there are very few requirements for small businesses to actually carry this kind of you know any insurance against these cyber risks and what's actually probably more scary is that what some small businesses are finding you know a small business is just trying to try to like focus on the the product or service they're selling it's hard work being a small business and then and they may find oh they've been required to carry some business insurance um, yeah. which could cover their property and some sort of liability. And they probably don't think much more about it. And what we've even seen there is, is then when they're shocked to find like, oh, wait a second, um, I got hacked. And you wouldn't tell me that my business insurance that I thought would protect me and my business doesn't actually cover it. Um, so I think that's really the case right now is there's really a gap that there's these whole new set of cyber risks which aren't being covered by the you know by you know the typical policy that a small business is buying, and so largely they're not being required by anyone to carry it right now, and they're a little unaware of it quietly how quite quite frankly how exposed they are. Yeah. So as we all move online, you've got some portion of folks' sales moving online, or just e even if you're not trying to sell online. Uh, do you still have risk? I mean, I think, as, as you said, folks are kind of confused about, do I have risk? Do I not? Should I worry about this? Should I think about it? Uh, I, it when you're talking with folks or when you, you think about it from the, the businesses you're involved in, what advice do you have for folks there? Sure. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious if someone actually has online revenue. So revenue that's coming through their website or their, their mobile application or some other sort of like online uh, presence. But, you know, the vast majority of small businesses right now, even if they're if they're collecting their revenue, you know, at a point of sale in their office or building, have some representation online to, to basically um, where people can find their business. Think about the doctor's practice. They might not be actually selling uh, many services online via their website, but their presence is known via that. That's how people are finding them, connecting with them. But also that's how hackers can find them and identify that, oh, they are a, a medical practice and they may have you know oh it look in this in this particular town there's a good chance that they have 10 20,000 medical records and and that's a target to them and then and then those medical records and that is are basically their office is connected to the internet and via that method they're they're you know a potential to be attacked yeah for those listening going well why would someone want to steal medical records so um, our, our tagline for the radio program is from the the dark web to your radio dial and and out there on the dark web it's a uh, just a, kind of a traditional marketplace where bad things are bought and sold and uh, medical records uh, kind of in bulk uh, for U.S. citizens could be worth anywhere from 25 to maybe $100 each. Uh, so if you, you think about that uh, criminal wanting to break into that medical practice, if there's a thousand records there uh, at 25 bucks each, that's 25 grand. If there's 10,000 records, that's $250,000. So uh, and if they can come in through your internet connection and steal all those and then go sell them, that's a pretty nice uh, payday. And, and for uh, those folks with the computer skills and with no ethics or low ethics anyways. 
and it's a, and it's a scale game for them as well. I mean, just think about it. They're really they're they're not spending any time trying to crack any really hard uh, uh, security system or whatnot. They're driving down the street and seeing which houses clearly have their doors unlocked. You know, even clearly where the doors actually ajar. You know, in a digital sense, they can see the equivalent there, and then they're just going on like and going and taking what they can take free and free and easily. And um, and that's what's scary because for these small businesses, the the target is real. The, the example you described there, two hundred fifty thousand um, dollars, and yet these are not sophisticated sophisticated businesses. They don't have um, you know sophisticated, dedicated IT people in house to manage these risks, and so they're at that pinch point of being of value, but like undersecured and also underinsured for these kind of risks. Yeah, I mean, for a medical practice with 10,000 records, that would be a, a two to three doctor medical group that's maybe been in practice for a few years, uh, or maybe even a solo practitioner that's had a practice around for quite a while and has seen a number of patients over time. And, and with some of the retention requirements out there for medical records, uh, they may have built up a, a pool, especially if a like a pediatrician, um, children's medical records need to be kept for a, a substantial period of time. So even though you may not have more than a few thousand active patients, you may have many um, up to five or 10,000 records per per practicing physician in a, in a medical practice. So uh, yeah, as when he was saying that these are not necessarily large organizations. If you, you look at somewhere like a, a hospital group, they have an IT security team. They have folks that are thinking about all this all the time. They have outside vendors coming in to audit them. They have uh, third-party services working to secure them. And uh, I mean, and same thing with the, some of the larger health insurers, and we've still seen Anthem and a number of the other ones have had large-scale medical record breaches. You're listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio, and I'm your host, Brett Pyatt. I'm joined by Hugh Edwards, a, a cyber risk expert, and we're discussing cyber risk out there in small businesses. I think everyone needs to be online these days, uh, at least in a, a catalog and ability to um, have folks find your business. Uh, I mean, I, I can't think of the last time I, I went out to a restaurant or even went to my doctor's office without pulling my mobile phone out to get the address or to, to see where I was going to head to, um, unless it's already turned into my, my favorite spot. And then, I'm, then I know how to find my way there, but likely I found it on the internet uh, to start with. So uh, we, were, we were talking a little bit about uh, the the risks in business, and I think everyone's got fire insurance, uh, but there's also a fire department. Like, if the building we're in catches fire, someone's going to dial 911. The fire department is going to show up here at the building and put the fire out. If you're a small business and you get hacked, what happens? What's well, a great question, right? It's like, who are you going to call? And it's like, not Ghostbusters. But it's like, um, that's the trouble right now. I mean, you can call your local police department. You could call the FBI, and they will likely tell you, good luck. There's yeah. nothing they can do because that you know you've been attacked from somewhere that's likely not in this state, not in this country, and certainly outside any jurisdiction that anyone here has any potential to actually act upon and realistically you know um, track down and, and address that crime. And so largely, these small businesses are on their own. And yeah. so this is what often we'll find is that they're going to call who is the person you know either their IT person, their IT um, outsource IT services, or someone they know who knows a bit about IT and ask them, what do I do now? Yeah, and this is an interesting one because, as you said, it's like uh, the equivalent uh, for many of these businesses, the door is getting left unlocked or the lock is not sophisticated. And in that case, for criminals, they've got to go by physically. They need to 
pick the lock or walk in the door, steal the physical asset and walk out of the building. And and in that case, like the local police, you're that crime was committed in their jurisdiction, clearly. Mm-hmm. And here now you, you may have a business that is, let's just say we're so we're recording this from uh, San Antonio, Texas. So let's say the business is uh, here in downtown San Antonio, Texas, but their website might be hosted in another in a data center in another state that website might be where they they do their e-commerce transactions they have a bunch of credit card numbers it's connected to their bank and they left a security vulnerability on there so it was the hackers got into that website in some other state somewhere else those hackers came from uh, across the internet uh, in in from another country uh they broke into there they stole the money out of the the website took it off to a, a bank in yet a different country or they uh, took that money from the, the car, credit cards from the website and bought Bitcoin or something else with it, uh, and that stuff is, is gone far away. As you said, it's not really clear whose jurisdiction that is or, or even maybe what laws that all starts to fall under. Absolutely. And, and, and who would even begin to sort that through? I mean, that's the, the, the real reality there is, is that at this point in time, the small business is on their own. And it's up to them to try to find a figure out now how they start to to solve their own problems. Yeah, is if you're a, a retail outlet these days, and maybe uh, if, if you're selling online a little bit, um, I would suggest selling through uh, Etsy or eBay or some platform where you're not worrying about securing the site and securing all the commerce transactions yourself. The moment you're up and running your own e-commerce platform. You're taking credit cards into your own website. You're thinking about PCI compliance. It's actually really easy to get set up and to do these things, um, but it's also potentially really dangerous. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, it's like, and then where, once again, where does the risks fall there and how are you going to track that down and, and find on who's going to be able to step in and help you? Yeah. It's, I mean, it, if, I guess as I, I think of some more analogies on this, it's like if you were running a, a sidewalk sale in front of your store, you wouldn't leave your goods on the sidewalk overnight with a little bucket that says, please pay for this and leave it here. But I mean, I think on the, on the web, there's that level of security on many of these, these storefronts out there um, because it's now so easy to download and set up your own uh, infrastructure. Uh, and maybe the business might engage an outside IT consultant or they might have somebody that's a, a manager inside the business that's kind of tech savvy at one point in time and things are running well uh, but then that person leaves or the the person at the even your IT company um, moves on to the next account and now you're not being actively patched updated and maintained anymore absolutely and that's where we see like the vast majority of like uh, vulnerabilities ha- vulnerabilities happening with these small businesses it's not from some you know the latest greatest zero day virus you know, piece of malware that's come out that's attacking the big corporates or big enterprises. It's it's a simple vulnerability that was exposed six or twelve months ago. That is where there's patches have been published and but have not been actually implemented by small businesses here or there and everywhere. And that's a very common thing, and they're an easy target at that point. Yeah, now uh, it's I, I got asked uh, this last few weeks about these um, hardware supply chain hacks. The the Chinese government, uh, in theory, has has embedded malware into the the chips of certain motherboards and certain network cards. And um, from a, a small business perspective, 
you just don't worry about those ones. Like, I mean, if someone is that sophisticated and they want to get into your small business, it's kind of game over. It's like if the, the Ocean's Eleven gang shows up to break into your corner retail boutique to steal your dresses or the uh, credit cards uh, from your customers, uh, it's going to be over. But it, it's uh, the basic things that uh, you can be doing and those basic things that are driving, um, I think, the majority of the risk out there right now. Yeah, absolutely. And it's right. Some of these things are just are, are, are they're not complicated, um, but they do require consistency. They do require um, uh, to, to be monitored and actually taken care of. And that's and this is hard stuff for small business. Yeah, because I mean, there's yeah always more going on in the day than you you can get done uh, for the, the life of the average small business owner. So with your kind of financial controls background. So as a small business goes online, and let's say they're paying vendors and merchants now online, they're moving money back and forth, those things are, are happening. Uh, do you have uh, tips, thoughts? Uh, I mean, what kind of processes have, have you set up uh, to protect businesses or that you're working in uh, from that phishing email, from all those things that, that folks have done to steal lots of money via fraudulent wires and other activities over the last few years yeah i think with that one there there's there's a simple thing which is um some separation of control that in anything that involves a financial track of transaction that that requires like you know two people um and some separation of someone who is actually you know uh receiving and approving or drafting and approving um and an example there is is like if so if you get a if i'm a small business and i get an info i get and then basically obviously check in a second time again any information via a different medium so what you know what a good example here is, is that any payment you're making to a vendor um, should be drafted by one person, approved by someone else. And so you have some, a second person there to like review and check if something's happened, you know, to, to, for their spidey sense to go off if like, hey, something looks different, looks odd. Um, the other example there is, is when you get that, that email from your vendor saying they've got updated ACH information, um, which is a very common way that people are getting fished. And then, you know, that, that person is then taking that information, updating it. And before you know it, the next time that legitimate payment goes out to that vendor, it's going to a different bank account now and going to a hacker's bank account. So when you receive that there is to actually pick up the phone to the vendor and call, and call the number that you have on file, not whatever numbers in any email or any notification you have to have that separation there. So if I received it over email, similarly, if I received a phone call from them to follow up by my one of my other mediums of, you know, maybe I call back on the number that I know that they call that they called from rather than assume that the number they called in was actually them. And so it, it's really get, some of this doesn't require sophisticated technology. It just requires some separation and largely saying anything needs to be like validated a second way, and any any big payment needs to be re reviewed by two people. Yeah, and it's kind of sad. I mean, I think in general people want to trust other people, but in these sorts of scenarios, you, you can't. We had on uh, a couple of attorneys, uh, one of them that specializes in, in litigation around this area, and he had talked about individual on the consumer side who's email account had been compromised at some point in time and the hackers were sitting in that email account until that person was ready to sell their house and the day before the closing of their house the hacker went in and sent an email to the title company saying hey here's my updated bank routing information the title company updated that the hacker was in the email account in real time so they deleted all the stuff out of the sent folder they deleted the received emails back from the title company before the person even noticed house transaction closes 
money gets wired off a couple days later the person's like hey title company i haven't seen the money in my bank account yet well it's because it's not in their bank account it's already in someone else's bank account two days later so inside of businesses those same things have been happening if you did want to hear more about that story you can listen to our uh, rebroadcast and replays uh, on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com or uh, on any of your uh, favorite podcasting services it doesn't take that much more time to to do these things and these are just good double checks to put in in place anyways that can prevent um, all sorts of other non-cyber financial fraud. I know, I mean, I think we feel like we keep seeing um, out in the news where small businesses are having money taken from them, whether it's a a service provider partner that helps them with something uh, on the financial side or an employee or whatnot, having these separation of duties and controls inside the business just uh, prevent all sorts of bad things from happening. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the, the single point of failure you want to avoid there because I think it's going in with the mindset that at some point, you if you haven't received one yet, you will receive efficient attempt. You will receive multiple efficient attempts. You're going to receive them every year <laughs> from here to the end of time. And so kind of expecting that and expecting that despite all the, the best security training, you know, any employee, you know, on a day could be duped by that. And often it's often it's, it plays on the authorities. So the, the, the accounts payable person receives an email from the CEO asking to wire something and doesn't want to question the CEO and assumes, well, this must be legit. Um, and so if it may, if there's obviously a, a, a simple like, a, you know, draft and approve there where there's two two sets of approvals that are required, that's likely going to catch such a thing. And similarly, if you can ingrain with, you know, with anyone that anytime you receive such a, such a, such a request that you follow up via another means. So if you only receive that email from your CEO asking to wire that information that day, you pick up the phone to the CEO uh, yeah. and say and double check. And that doesn't take very long at all. And that's just good. That's just good practice. Oh, for sure. And and that uh, the attackers are getting much more sophisticated these days. So if you're uh, the owner of a business, or the the CEO or the CFO. You might be out public speaking at a conference somewhere or an event, and so it's up on the internet. The hackers have have gathered that information. They know you're out of the office that day, um, and so they can send a very well targeted message to your accounts payable person. Can say, "Hey, uh, I'm over at the uh, cyber forensics conference uh, this week, and I've uh, been working on a business deal with a new partner there." Um, and I need you to, to wire $25,000 to kick this partnership off. I mean, that message can come through and can sound very believable um, because that information's out there. And as a, a business executive or business owner, you need to be out there as a, a public face. You need to be um, working on marketing and advertising and getting your brand out there. So it, it's one of these uh, where you, you do that. You provide information for the attacker to have context to, to go make Uh, their attack that much more believable and that much more targeted. Absolutely. And rather than live in a world where you you don't do those things and hide, it's living in a world where you we basically admit and accept this from the get go and then just put the controls in place to to deal with that. You're listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio. And I'm joined this week by Hugh Edwards, uh, an expert in cyber risk. Uh, We've been talking about some of the risks small business face um, and maybe that you might have insurance out there if you are a small business, uh, but we really didn't dive in yet uh, to some of the details behind that. So if you'll uh, stick with us through the uh, news traffic and weather update here coming to the bottom of the hour, uh, we're going to go into some details about some of these uh, things. That's uh, business interruption. Uh, what's the heck is the difference between indemnification versus liability versus risk? All these insurance industry words. And uh, Hugh is going to help us make uh, some sense out of 
them because while they are in the English language, they're not even English to this radio host. So uh, if you're not going to be able to stick with us uh, after the news, traffic, and weather update here at the bottom of the hour, you can catch the rebroadcast and replay of this. It will go up on our website uh, on Tuesday here following this airing on Saturday night. Uh, you, you can uh, always find it on your favorite podcasting service too, uh, iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, uh, anything out there. If there is a podcasting service that you like where you cannot find uh, our program, uh, reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter. Let us know, and we will get you a CyberTalk Radio t-shirt. If you uh, have a topic you want us to cover, uh, Facebook and Twitter is also a great place to reach us there. If you would like to be a guest of the program, we've got a, a form uh, on our website where uh, you can contact us to come here and talk about the topics that you have uh, in the cyber world. Uh, we do cover a broad area, including education and uh, development, because if we uh, just talked fancy, nerdy cybersecurity stuff all the time, uh, it won't actually help because there's not going to be enough people out there uh, to do all of the things uh, that are going to be required to actually keep um, individuals and businesses safe on the internet. I mean, again, when we started this program two years ago, I don't know that anyone knew what cybersecurity was, uh, but now uh, everyone does, and it's not just thanks uh, to this radio program. So we will be uh, right back here after a news, traffic, and weather update. Welcome back to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. Joined this week by Hugh Edwards, uh, an expert in cyber risk and uh, a licensed uh, insurance producer. Is that the correct word, Hugh? That is correct. That is the correct word. So we're going to dive uh, into a bunch more of this uh, insurance. And uh, what should you be asking your insurance agent, broker, person you talk to about your insurance? Uh, what type of policy should you look at if you're doing business online, uh, if you're uh, running a business that's connected to the internet, using technology, uh, has email, all of these things that I think every business does these days, uh, except most of us have fire insurance, most of us have theft insurance from somebody breaking into our office to physically steal things, uh, but uh, from the stats I read out there, less than half of the small businesses and maybe way less than half have some type of coverage for bad stuff happening to them on the internet. Yeah, let me jump into that there. So there are there is probably three sort of big buckets to sort of think about here um, initially, and then we'll sort of dive into them. Then there's this idea you you hear you hear people talk about first party, and so that's basically that. Think about that a bit like your you know when you think about property insurance for your for your building. So this is like stuff something happens to the stuff that you own. In this case, it might be your digital assets. So you may have some digital assets that are stolen um, or destroyed. Um, and 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 so what we're looking at there is is like, hey, is there some protection in the eventuality that something like that happens as a result of a hack or even as a as a result of accidental 
you know, some some employee accidentally deleting a bunch of data um, and needing to have cover to basically replace or recreate that data. So so if I was a, a well, we use the medical practice example again. So say I, I saw a bunch of patients. I had all the documentation on that. I hadn't yet submitted it for billing and all of those records were destroyed and lost. And I, I've lost all of that data, whether it was an employee deleting it or a hacker breaking it and deleting it. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about there? Yeah. So and it's that kind of data and like how to ascribe value to that and recreate that data there. Um, sort of, and also in sort of a part of that sort of first party, might one might say as well, is this idea of some sort of like a criminal element. So you basically you you essentially had money digitally stolen from you, and that could have happened in the case of um, in the case of you've been fished and money has been wired out to a to a to a hacker, um, and that money can't be reclaimed, and this would be covered to cover that you know essentially that that criminal theft in the digital realm. Um, and then the other big bucket, obviously, is what might be called third party. And so this here, this is like basically, you know, basically damages to other people as a result of something that's happened there. And so within within that, when there you have that certainly, okay, you have basically your you've been breached. Um, you have basically um, information on your customers or patients, if in, the, in that healthcare example, has been stolen and exposed. Um, and as a result of that, lawsuits come in. Um, because some damages basically um, because of the damages they are experienced further down the line. Yeah. So let's say, I mean, in this one, I was an attorney and I had a bunch of confidential records, attorney client privilege stuff for my clients. And all those now are, are public out on the Internet. I'm, I'm not going to be in a, a good spot as an attorney there. Absolutely. So that would be this third party thing, because I would have some clients likely that would probably come sue me for not taking care of their records properly. Absolutely. And so knowing that you, that's where you look to and have some coverage there to have some peace of mind that up to a particular limit, you have some cover against those unknowns, unknown liabilities that may come in after the fact. And then, you know, the, the other things to sort of think about in here then are like, you know, are sort of like the cost there. So, oh, in the case that um, you've been hacked and your records have been breached and basically um, stolen by a hacker and exposed, um, in that eventuality, you may need to pay um to basically um to make good on that so you may and depending on the laws of your given state um you may need to like basically uh, maybe be regulatory fines for your industry based on those records you may be required to pay for credit monitoring for the individuals whose personal information has been exposed and so that's when we're looking at here under these kind of like policies like how are these different elements being covered i think it is in the the cyber side of this stuff so uh, here's words that i hear and i don't know if these words mean anything in the insurance side of the world really or if these are just marketing terms but uh, a cybersecurity insurance policy. Does that mean anything on the insurance? Like, what is that? I mean, is 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 that its own thing? So, the, yes, it is. And so, in, in the recent years, we've started to see the introduction of policies that are specifically insuring against these cyber-related events. And some of them are called cyber insurance or cyber security insurance or cyber liability insurance. Um, uh, we're seeing these being, you know, being introduced by insurance carriers as standalone policies. And over time, we'll see them, we more likelihood start to see them added as either endorsements or as, you know, you know core components of a business owner's policy that a small business might buy. But today, certainly for the small business, these are very much standalone policies that um, are not common 
Um, in some industries, they are now being required. So if you're a small uh, technology company writing software and you're doing uh, work for a large technology company, there is a good chance that large technology company is now going to ask you, the small technology company, to carry some kind of cyber liability insurance in case there's something that you do introduces, you know, gives a, a way in for a hacker or some breach. Yeah. So, and as I think about this cyber insurance, so there's... Um, a data breach in is that its own separate policy thing a data breach insurance this is hacker gets in and steals data or is that just english words again actually describing something inside of an insurance policy for liability indemnification so that's another one is that that's the that's there isn't a particular necessarily um a policy for that that's something that's included in one of these policies and you've hit on something here which is basically confusion um, every company is actually using slightly different terminology here for what is covered. And this is where the real challenge comes for the small business uh, owner who is looking at, hey, maybe I should get some cyber insurance here above and beyond, hey, some um, cyber securities that I might have in place to protect my my business is like, what are the questions to ask? Yeah. And what is, in, what is included there? And that's where there's a lot of confusion. Um, and each policy is slightly different. Wording is slightly different. Um, another component which we didn't really talk about is this idea of business interruption. So that if something happens to your website that you are paid out and that's either in some form of lost revenue or lost earnings um, under some defined terms um, for that period for because your business has been impacted. Yeah. And and so you've got the the claim insurance that to cover kind of these uh direct damages so it's uh you've got to pay for um getting the data restored inside of your business um it if if i'm a, a business there's maybe not the money in the bank to go through and do all of this work while i i wait for this so um my experience with insurance even is just like getting in a, an automobile accident um, the money does not flow through super quickly in those areas like the even just getting all the paperwork back and forth to get the um, work done at the body shop and all of that sort of stuff. It goes pretty slow. You get rental car coverage, but maybe they don't even cover the rental car for as long as, as you need to have a rental car and you're trying to figure out what to do. Um, it, it feels like in the, the cyber insurance world, in the business side of things, this could all be as complicated or more complicated. I would definitely say it's in the more complicated. And in that one there, so take something like business interruption. Um, so depending on the policy you look like, they, you need to look for things like, when does this kick in? So there may be some of these policies may have waiting periods. Maybe it's a day, maybe it's a week, maybe it's more before it kicks in. And then how in, and then what is the process then for making the claim? What needs to be verified or, um, you know, basically validated? And how is that submitted? And when is that approved? And when might that get paid out? And so something like business interruption, um, that might not get paid out for three to six months. After a certain event, you know, a, a hack took place and the business was down for two or three weeks, during which it was not collecting any revenue. And so that's kind of the big challenge here for, for when this comes to big businesses, for enterprises. Um, they may, the, the, the whole industry is a lot more sophisticated. There's some of these policies are available. Um, and a, a big company can can afford that maybe it takes them a year before they get paid out on business yeah. interruption. Yeah, they've got, they've got working capital. They've got working capital. For a small business, the, and this is where the, this can be really challenging in the example of, so a small business gets fished. Um, and so through this social engineering attempt, they end up wiring money out. And say they've wired out $50,000. That might be the next two payrolls. Yeah. And so... It, 
And so the process then of being able to file that claim and basically get that back and when that's paid, that could be, a, you know, m you know, weeks or months. And in that period, how do they weather that storm? Yeah. And so as a, as a small business owner looking at one of these um, thinking about one of these insurance policies, given that most small businesses are not being required to carry these right now, I think a small business really needs to look at like, what is it looking to achieve by having this coverage? Is it to cover it in the eventuality that it's made whole, knowing that it might have to go you know, out of pocket and it might not get that back till months later? Or really, were they looking for something to actually help them in that near term? And in that and through that lens, does this policy that they're looking at cover it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think from the cybersecurity expert side of stuff. So if I find out that I've been breached, I need an incident response. That's going to cost money. So because like and we talked a little bit at the start of this, like if, if your building catches fire, you can dial 911. The fire department comes and puts the fire out. The damage stops. In the event that you discover you've been hacked, like the, you can't call 911. If you, you call the police, they will potentially open an investigation you call the fbi they may add you to an existing investigation but the the police and the fbi won't log into your computing systems and stop the attack um, that's outside of their scope so it's it's unlike the, the fire department will come into your building and they will put the fire out that's a public policy thing we've all decided that is a good idea same thing for the police department if someone breaks into your building and your alarm goes off the police will come into your building and physically stop that attacker but at the the public policy level at the city the county the state the federal government in the u.s uh, we've not decided yet that there's any phone number that you can call as a business and there will be public policy support uh, to come stop those cyber attacks so you have to contract your own private security effectively and those folks have to come in and stop and mitigate that attack um, and they're not inexpensive. Absolutely. And we're seeing that with a number of the policies that are being offered out there now where there is part of one, one of these cyber insurance policies that there is some... Um, additional service related to like um, um, dealing with it when a breach happens and some investigation and forensic and that's a good thing to look at there is, is like okay is there a preferred vendor are there pre-negotiated rates are there things that are actually covered or do you have to go into pocket yourself um, to at least be prepared for that and in most of the cases you're going into the pocket yourself but at least you could possibly go in on a pre-negotiated rate of more like the $350 an hour as opposed to picking up the phone uh, you know without anything pre-arranged and you could be paying $50 Fifteen hundred dollars an hour. This this sounds a lot like uh, my healthcare, the in network and out of network, and like which emergency room am I allowed to go to, and what does it cost me? Because uh, I mean, in the same thing in this this cyber attack, it's not one where you can wait around and spend a bunch of time to price shop and and issue RFPs. And I mean, it's the, the you need someone to show up immediately to start working on this stuff because because if not, the the hacker continue to get into more systems and cause more harm. Absolutely. I mean, there is the, you know, a, you know, a general belief that actually, you know, every business should have their own business, you know, uh, continuity plan. How what do you deal with in this eventuality? The trouble is small businesses, it's they have a lot on their plate. And I guarantee that most small businesses do not have a, such a plan in place to deal with a breach, um, which includes things like who they call and what those rates might be and how they might deal with it. And so you're starting to see with because of that knowledge of the lack there generally with small business, the, the folks starting to look you know, to, to see what can be bundled or included sort of as part of that insurance policy. It just varies quite dramatically across carrier. Yeah. 
You're listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio, and we're talking cyber risk and working through uh, some of the details of uh, things you should be thinking about with your cyber insurance policies. If you just turned the radio on now and joined us, uh, you can listen to the rebroadcast of this. Uh, it'll be up on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com on Tuesday. It'll also be on all of your uh, favorite podcasting services. Um, and Hugh is uh, my, my guest this week. He's a cyber risk expert, and we were uh, just talking through what you, you kind of uh, need to think about from a business continuity plan perspective. And, and this sounds like a very overwhelming, super scary, hard-to-do word. This business continuity plan can be as easy as, look, go out to work. If you're a, a small business and there's five of you, you all go out to lunch maybe once a week or once a month. You do your weekly lunch. Uh Tell everybody at the lunch, today we're going to walk through a scenario here. So you say, you know what, we don't have the internet in our office, and the internet's going to be gone for a day. How do you each continue to do your job? Then you say the internet's going to be gone for a week. How do you continue to do your job? And then the internet's gone for a month. And usually when you get from that week, folks start to get a little antsy. When you tell them that they're not going to have any access to the internet for a month, they're like, well, like we can't do payroll, we can't, all these sorts of things. So this is where you can start to put together a basic business continuity plan, at least step one, just awareness of where are you reliant on internet and technology inside of your business. Um, but if you, like on your revenue side of your business, it might be, well, all of our um, credit card processing is over the internet now. Phone lines are gone, there is no backup plan, we don't have the little carbon paper sliders anymore because our, our bank and, and credit card merchants don't allow us to do that for, for PCI reasons now. So you'll start to hear from the people inside of your business things to worry about. You can determine which ones of those are high priority to come up with a plan B. Um, and and you go, you know what? Well, I'm, I'm never going to not have the internet for a month. Well, I mean, this is it's never until you're um, BART out in the Bay Area. Um, and so this was the, the rapid transit, the, the rail system out there. Um, all 1,500 plus of their servers all got infected with ransomware. And they effectively didn't have technology inside of their business uh, for uh, quite a while. They, um, in the state of California, um, because they're municipally owned there and, and part of the city and the state, uh, they're not allowed to pay ransom to criminals. So they got ransomware, uh, and they had to decide if they just shut the trains down or if they just made them free until they could fix all these services. So they lost over 30 days of revenue because um, it was just free to ride BART there because they decided to leave the trains on, which was a really good idea. Um, and uh, But, I mean, that ended up costing them millions and millions of dollars just on the lost ticket sales, let alone all of the actual remediation work to go clean things up on the, the back side of, of that issue. So um, not having the Internet for, for 30 days effectively, not having key pieces of technology inside of your business for 30 days, um, can and, and and will happen. Uh, and if you've thought about it ahead of time, you're not in a panic firefighting. Uh, you you can do things uh, to prevent that. And I mean, one, let's just say on the, the payment processing side, let's say you run a, a small retail location. Normally, you've got an internet connection in the office. You've got a set of computers. Um, let's you're using one payment processing vendor. Uh, and that whole system got hacked and you're down there. If you've got a cell phone and you have, there's a whole bunch of payment processing things that can plug into the ports on your cell phone now. And tons of these folks, whether it's Square or something from Intuit or a whole bunch of vendors out there now have a payment thing that you can plug into your phone, no minimum commitment, nothing else. So 
if you had a whole separate second system that was your cell phone, you could still take payments from customers with that. If you hadn't thought of that ahead of time, then maybe you're trying to drive across town, figuring out who's got one of the little things I can plug into my phone. If you just ordered it ahead of time, you're up and running still. So this is what that, that business continuity plan can be. Um, it doesn't have to be something where you hire a, a team of, of experts and you spend months mapping out all, all sorts of crazy chaos. So uh, Hugh, as we're, we're talking through this, so we talked um, in a little bit about some of this direct expense. You've got people coming out to clean up your systems and fix this. Uh, we talked, I think, I guess you brought it up a little on the, like you might have to regulatory wise pay for credit monitoring, other things, but uh, indemnification limits. So inside of insurance, there's like direct expense payments. There's indemnification limits. I, I know there are these things, but I don't really understand how to ask what are the right questions to ask my insurance agent uh, about how these different things work out. I mean, as I think of the auto insurance, there's like, the physical property damage, there's medical, there's some of these different breakdown categories. But in, in my cyber insurance, I feel like there's like some direct expenses. There's these legal lawsuit limitations. Are, are, are these all broken down into separate categories? So within a policy, you usually will find the breakdowns. You may not find consistency in terms of how the buckets or types of these breakdowns across policies. Um, so that's what makes it hard for the small business. I mean, I think typically here, you know, there's going to be some limits then in terms of the the physical payouts on, you know, on actual um, data being lost or data being recreated or money being money being stolen. Yeah. And then typically there'll be a, a larger limit there, which is like up until that limit in terms of uh, which will largely be the the indemnity. So if the law 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 the the lawsuits come in and the the that all tallies up that could go up to the and you might hear something for a small business might be a one two or three million dollar limit kind of policy but typically you know the the things that are getting paid out are around you know that the cost of you know the tens of thousands to recreate some data or tens of thousands to basically um pay for a credit credit monitor and we're talking small businesses here so maybe yeah. the numbers aren't necessarily huge and this is what we're seeing right now so i think going back almost to your you know the the business continuity plan it's it's not a lot of work. It's just a little piece of thoughtful work as a small business. Like, what are the likely things that could happen to me? And in my case of business, how might that play out? Yeah. And with a small business, the what we're not seeing right now is the large is the larger amounts of like big lawsuits coming out of a small business. This isn't Target um, where there's like, you know, class action lawsuits and, you know, big collections of uh, of consumers that are now bandied together to come and to come and claim against it. This is largely like, hey, they, we need to pay for credit monitoring for 10,000 people. Yeah. Um, we need to deal with these various like um, activities to clean up after a breach. There might be forensic costs and remediation costs. Um, but really it's looking forward to like as a small business, um, what are the things that could really, like you said, torpedo the business? And I think there is like, okay, if my website is down and I'm not collecting revenue, how do I deal with that one? So yeah. when I think, you know, if I'm advising a small business what to think about, it'd be like, okay, what happens in terms of business interruption? Can I weather the storm there? If I have to go, like you said, you know, a week, two weeks without collecting any revenue, what happens there? Or if I have to basically, um, if I get fished and I, I know wired a certain amount out, how do I deal in that eventuality? Yeah. So, and as you're you're going through this thought process there as the the small business, um, how do I find out? Because I mean, like in the the auto insurance world, I'll, I'll use that one. Everything everyone's pretty familiar. If you put fancy rims on your car and those rims were more expensive than the stock rims, and you you got in a wreck and you you bent the rim. 
the insurance company might say, you know what, we're not going to actually pay you for that the price of the upgraded rim on there. You didn't tell us the more expensive rim was on the car. It's not priced into your policy. For these cyber things, is like, are there disclosure questionnaires? Are there a bunch of exclusions in policies? Or the, like, I mean, this this all feels like it could be way more complicated than I, I put aftermarket speakers or rims on my car or, or uh, painted the car a different, more expensive aftermarket color, and I forgot to tell the insurance company about that. Well, I think it depends, and that's where it gets complicated. Right? Yeah. Um, talk to your agent. Is that? I mean, certainly yeah. talk to your agent. The, the The challenge right now is that that agent you've been speaking to has been helping with your property and general liability for a number of years um, and is now having to deal with this cyber risk. And this is a risk that not many people are familiar with. Um, not people have a good understanding of. There is no consistency across policies, application forms, um, and so there's a lot of confusion. So certainly, talk to your you know talk to your agent um, and get as much help as you can there. Um, now, and, I mean, as, I mean, exclusions. As I just think about this from a cyber expert perspective, if somebody like leaving a Bitcoin wallet on a computer that's got five hundred thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin in it, like you should be doing some reasonable stuff to secure that. As an insurance company, I, I'm not sure if I would want you leaving a Bitcoin wallet with a bunch of money on a hard drive that's not encrypted, maybe even on a computer that's connected to the internet. Um, it, so like, it seems like those sorts of things would be under some policy exclusion, but maybe the insurance industry is just not paying attention to that, or if they did even ask, like, what's the value of your digital assets connected to the internet? Or, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's not, I mean... I mean, in all likelihood, what the insurance industries are doing, they'll, they'd have some exclusion. There should be some limits. So they yeah. often they might find a sublimit of $100,000 for any kind of crime element. So they're not going to get... And may, I t haven't seen questions where they would ask that particular question about Bitcoin. Yeah. But the, the, the thing here is that the, the application forms vary. We've seen 10, 20, 30-page PDFs that are asking questions like, do you have a chief information security officer? Um, which is not something a typical small business has. You know, questions that come from the world of, you know, asking, you know, policies like this for an enterprise. Um, but then we've seen policies as short as three to five pages, but again then, and then asking, you know, questions that largely around records, revenue segments, um, and not going into this other detail and taking a, a general. I think the big question right now, the challenge for small businesses is on a given policy, and this is where you need to ask your broker and ask that question to the carrier, what what happens if if my estimate here is plus or minus ten percent, yeah. plus or minus fifty percent? You know, when the question asks, do I have um, do I have offsite backups? Am I um, is asked the question, is this an indication or is this am I you know admitting uh, saying that I have it on every possible computer at all times? Yeah, no, it's a, a tricky one, I guess, as you think about those backups and where data resides. Uh, if, if it's running on a, a cloud system, the software is a service somewhere. There's complications we could continue to talk about for uh, many hours here. Mm -hmm. uh, if you uh, wanted to learn more about this uh, and other aspects of cybersecurity, uh, look us up, uh, add us onto your uh, podcast listening out there, or uh, tune in uh, next Saturday evening uh, for another episode of Cyber Talk Radio.